Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Uh, growing up as a child, one of the most magical evenings uh, for me every couple years was the opening ceremony of the Olympics. I remember that my, my parents would let me stay up late to watch the opening ceremony of the Olympics, which was quite long. I think for them it was their contribution to my education of geography because that was about the extent of it at home. I'd get to learn where the various countries were and things like that. But it was just a magical display. Uh, I saw an article this week that actually captured it better than I can. And it says this, the opening ceremonies at the Olympic Games are an extraordinary and an intricately choreographed extravaganza featuring an amazing explosion of color and music. The opening ceremony attracts hundreds of millions of television viewers worldwide, as well as tens of thousands of delighted and enthralled spectators inside the Olympic Stadium. Proudly led by their flag bearers, country delegations then parade around the stadium track. The games must be declared open by the host nation. The Olympic flag must be carried into the stadium and raised. The Olympic oath must be spoken by an athlete, judge, and coach. And doves of peace must be symbolically released. Next comes the most anticipated moment of the night. The culmination of the torch relay during which fans finally discover which famous figure will light the Olympic flame. Inevitably... A gigantic firework display brings the curtain down on the ceremony to launch a fortnight of elite sporting competition. In the months leading up to the Olympics as a child, I was always so excited for them, but I would keep my excitement in check until the opening ceremonies. And it would be at the opening ceremonies that I would allow my excitement and my anticipation to run over because they were here. We got to see amazing things like gymnasts flip and twist through the air in ways that I couldn't imagine. Skiers fly through the air like a bird. See people catapulting tunnels, down tunnels of ice at 90 miles an hour. It was an amazing and wonderful thing to watch the Olympics as a child. And it all started with these opening ceremonies. Today is the first day of a week that Christians around the world call Holy Week. It is a week filled with wonder at the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Holy Week is so important to the Christian faith that even though this week composed about one 160th of Jesus's earthly ministry, it composes about one third of the gospels. Uh, a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John, it composes about half of the Gospel of John, a focus on this Holy Week. Holy Week is the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. It is the focal point of the Christian faith, and Christians would claim that it is a turning point in the history of the world. And yes, it too has an opening ceremony, an opening ceremony that we celebrate today, an opening ceremony that we call Palm Sunday. 
It is one of the few events that are in all four of the Gospels. And it is an opening ceremony that is meant to stir our interest and our affections and our anticipation of the week that is to come. And so if you would please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Uh, it is page 853 in the Red Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back. Feel free to go grab one uh, and bring it back to your seat. There's also some in the seats in front of you in the side sections as well. Uh, as we look at back at the first Palm Sunday, uh, again, my hope for us is that this would not only be an opening ceremony for Jesus, but even this would be an opening ceremony for you and for me in 2022, an opening ceremony to dive deep into the mysteries of that first holy week, to dive deeper into studying God's word and prayer and other other spiritual disciplines that we might feel, be filled more and more with the wonder and the joy of this Easter season. And to that end, you will see even in your bulletin, there is a handout for Holy Week, some suggested reading. You don't have to do this. This is just a helpful tool because today is the opening ceremony and we want you to dive deep this week. So let's look together here at the opening ceremony, Mark 11, verse one through 11. This is God's word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that, had, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray that you would stir in our hearts and affection for you and for your work, not only today as we study this passage, but throughout this week as we plunge deep into your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Again, my hope for you is this is a kickstart to your Holy Week, a kickstart to dive deep into the story of Jesus. And as we look at this first Palm Sunday passage in Mark chapter 11, there are three distinct scenes that we want to go through in this passage. The first is the preparation for Palm Sunday. Second is the proclamation of Palm Sunday. And the third is the postscript to Palm Sunday. So the preparation, proclamation, and postscript. First, the preparation for Palm Sunday. Uh, I've shared this with you before, but in the gospel of Mark, uh, he is very direct and very to the point, typically. He doesn't waste time with details and things like that. And yet here in this passage, the writer spends six verses 
to explain the mode of transportation that Jesus is going to take into Jerusalem after a long journey to that location. It was a big deal to the author because it was a big deal to Jesus. When Jesus was two miles out, which is about from here to Culver's, if you're trying to put it in perspective, but from here, when Jesus was about two miles out from Jerusalem, Jesus stops the caravan and takes extraordinary measures to secure his final form of transportation into Jerusalem. Look with me again at verse one. It says, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. We have up here a map for you. I don't know about you, but I like to kind of see things. And so this is his journey in. And so he sent two of his disciples either into Bethany or Bethpage, I'm not sure. Verse two continues, and he said, and he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter in, you will find a colt, that is uh, a horse or a donkey less than a year old. Most likely it was a donkey because that was more prevalent in the region. You'll see, you'll see, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. Verse four, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. This donkey thing is a bit weird if you had ever thought about it. I mean, why is it that Jesus so badly wants to ride in on a donkey <laughs> into Jerusalem? Uh, why does he want this so bad? Why, what, was it because his legs were tired and he didn't wanna walk the remaining two miles? I mean, did Mark include this detail just to make sure everyone knew that Jesus didn't steal the donkey? Of course, it was neither of those things. It's because this donkey served as an evangelist. This donkey was proclaiming something very important about Jesus, or at the very least, this donkey was proclaiming very some, something very important that Jesus was claiming about himself. You see, in the Old Testament, there's a book called Zechariah that was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. And in the book of Zechariah, the people of God are returning from exile back into the promised land, back to Jerusalem. And they're trying to rebuild the temple, rebuild the priestly system, rebuild their system of worship before God. And they are getting very discouraged because they have a lot of military opposition from the countries around them. But then when we get to Zechariah chapter eight and the Lord encourages his people. He promises his brokenhearted, beloved people a future of peace and prosperity and salvation. And then when we get to Zechariah chapter nine, he says, this salvation, this peace, this prosperity will come with a king. Verse one through eight of chapter nine of Zechariah explains that this coming king will be a warrior who will judge and crush and destroy Israel's enemies. And then we get to Zechariah 9.9. And we learn about how this awesome warrior king will make his grand entrance into Jerusalem. And we read this. In Zechariah 9.9, it says this. Oh, you can't see it there. That's all right. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foul of a donkey. 
You know, over 300 very specific prophecies were fulfilled in the birth, life, and death death and resurrection of Jesus. Many of those prophecies, Jesus uh, had no human control over at all. For example, no one controls where they were born. And yet the prophecies would say that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. They said that he would be out of Nazareth. They said that he would die on a tree, things that he couldn't control, that as he's dying, people would cast lots for his clothing. All of these were things that were prophesied in the Old Testament that humanly speaking, Jesus had no control over. But this is one prophecy Jesus did have control over. This prophecy is different than the other prophecies in that Jesus is arranging to make sure that this prophecy comes true. Now, the reason why this is so interesting is because uh, this prophecy, of course, is proclaiming, uh, or at least Jesus is claiming that he is the fulfillment of Zechariah that he is the coming savior, the coming king to rescue his people. Then the reason why that's so interesting is because up to this point, Jesus has always denied the fame, the credit, the kingship. Uh, matter of fact, uh, if you remember, as he heals people in the gospel of Mark, he often says, don't tell anyone. Just go and praise God for it, but don't tell anyone. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, in John 6, 15, we read this. It says that, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so Jesus is constantly avoiding people's desire to make him king. But that all changes on Palm Sunday. Jesus not only embraces their announcement of him as king, Jesus actually proclaims it through this donkey. He's proclaiming that he is the long-awaited messianic savior king. To give you a modern day example of why this mode of transportation was so symbolic for the people, uh, imagine that you are at a parade, okay? And while you're at this parade, you see a convertible come up and there are two people seated on, the back, seated on the back of the convertible. I think I have a picture of one similar to that. And you see they have crowns and they have sashes and they're dressed really nice. When you see someone riding in on a piece of transportation like this, dressed like this, you make an assumption, right? And the assumption is that they are the king and queen, right? The homecoming king and queen or the, the, the king and queen of the potato festival or the cheese curd festival or whatever it is. But this kind of tees you off to say, okay, this is the king and queen of this parade. The people in the time of Jesus were very familiar with the book of Zechariah. Many of them had memorized the book of Zechariah. And so they knew what they were looking for. They knew they were looking for a man coming in on a donkey, and here Jesus claims all of that prophecy is fulfilled in him. And so this is Jesus' preparation for Palm Sunday and Holy Week to get himself a donkey, to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, that there would be no mistake that Jesus is claiming that he is the promised one. He is the one who would destroy Israel's greatest enemy, that he is the king that would bring salvation to his people. So that is the preparation for Palm Sunday. But then we get into the proclamation of Palm Sunday. What are people saying as Jesus enters the city? Look at verse seven and eight with me. It says, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Laying down of the cloaks on the road was an act of homage and celebration. 
It was like rolling out the red carpet to a, to a king who had gone and conquered their enemies and was coming back into town. Furthermore, putting those cloaks on the ground was symbolic of putting themselves underneath the feet of this king, underneath his authority. It also says that they placed down leafy branches like these palms. We know from other gospels that they waved these, these, these palms as well as Jesus came in. And this was a symbol of Israel. This was a national symbol for them. It would be as if a general came home from war and, and, and there would be a parade and we'd be waving you know, American flags. It was the same thing with these palm branches. They were, they were waving these symbols of their nationality, of their tribe, of Israel. And they were saying, here comes the king. Here comes the king as they welcomed him in. As a matter of fact, 142 BC, Simon Maccabeus, after he drove out the Syrians, they threw a similar parade where they waved palm branches and chanted thanksgiving and praise to God. Look at verse nine with me. It says, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This word Hosanna comes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says this, save us, we pray. That is the word Hosanna. Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. What is so amazing that what they are singing in Psalm 118 to the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, they are now singing out to Jesus. It is simultaneously a cry for help and a word of praise to Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. But the question for us is this, what did they mean by Hosanna? What did they mean when the crowd, when they were saying, oh, save us, Jesus, save us from our enemies, give us salvation, keep us from perishing. What did they mean? Well, we know as we look throughout the account of the gospels that they were looking for a political king to establish a political kingdom. They were looking for Jesus to come in to drive out the Romans and to establish a political earthly kingdom for Israel. That's what the people meant by Hosanna. But that's not what Jesus was thinking when they cried out Hosanna. You see, Jesus's plan for the people of God was far greater than they could possibly imagine. It was something much more than a political kingdom. To, to kind of put this in perspective, uh, I know some teenage kids probably know uh, this person. He's an internet sensation. His name's Jimmy Donaldson. Uh, curious if any of the kids know who that is. He also goes by the nickname Mr. Beast. And uh, Mr. Beast is a guy who, uh, well, I'll just tell the story. So, so Mr. Beast bought this house. And, uh, and so once he bought the house, he came in with his friends and he ordered a pizza. And when the pizza guy delivered it, uh, Mr. Beast said to this pizza guy, he said, hey, um, we're trying to go pick up furniture and move it in here tomorrow. Could we pay you some money and you could come help us move that in? And pizza guy agreed to do it. And so they went to Walmart. They picked out all of these amazing pieces of furniture, as good as Walmart can do. And they moved it into the house. And after moving it into the house, he looked at the pizza guy and said, hey, I'm sorry, uh, we can't pay you. Spent all our money getting the furnishings for this house. And the pizza guy is polite about it. Uh, and then Mr. Beast says, but we have bought this house for you. This house is yours. And the guy's just overwhelmed because he had been looking for his house. The house that he's in is dangerous for his children. They couldn't afford a house. And now he was given this house. Now, what did he expect when he delivered the pizza that day? He delivered 
He, he was probably hoping for a good tip, like five or $10, right? When he, when he moved in the furniture, maybe he's hoping for a thousand bucks to cover what he had done there, but he got so much more than what he had anticipated. He was given a house worth $300,000. In the same way, these people are crying out, Hosanna in the streets, praying for Jesus to come and to provide for them a salvation that does not scratch the surface of the glory of what Christ has come to give. They wanted a political king that would give them limited salvation to this limited people group in a limited region. But Christ has come to give salvation to all people throughout the entire world for all eternity. Jesus did not just come to give salvation from the Romans. Jesus came to give salvation from Satan, sin, and death, the greatest enemies of the people of God. Jesus was not the king Israel was expecting, but he was the king humanity needed. Jesus is the king who accomplishes what no other king can. Jesus is the king that reconnects us to our creator. Jesus is a king who saves people to himself and then gives them new life and life eternal. And so we have seen the preparation for Palm Sunday. Jesus goes to get a donkey so that he can claim that he is the promised king that will save his people. We have seen here the proclamation of Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Lord, save us. They meant it for a political earthly kingdom from the Romans, but Jesus was going to come to give them an eternal salvation. But finally, we get to the postscript of Palm Sunday. A postscript is something that you add at the end of the letter, right? The PS, the additional information. If you're watching a movie and the the movie ends and the music starts and then it shows pictures and it shows where they are now, that is the postscript to the movie. What I wanna look at here is the postscript to Palm Sunday. What happened to Jesus after his triumphal entry? What happened after they rolled out the red carpet and waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, what happened next? Well, let me ask you, what do you think a king would do when he enters his city? What would be your suspicion? Where would he go if he was coming from a long journey and enters his city? Where would he go? He would go to his palace, right? Because the palace is where he rules. It's where he reigns. It's where he dwells. That is their home. That's where a king would go, to their palace. But where does Jesus go? Look with me at verse 11. It says, and Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Why did Jesus go into the temple? Well, we know that Jesus, as a 12-year-old, said the temple is his father's house. The temple was Jesus' home. The temple is where the special presence of God and the reign of God and the blessing of God was for the people of God. Jesus went to the temple because he did not come to establish a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Look at verse 11 with me again. It says, and Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Jesus looking around at everything wasn't sightseeing. He had been to the temple before. Jesus looking around was an examination It was an examination of what was going on in the temple. The temple was fulfilling its purpose. You see, the temple was the epicenter of the worship of the one true God. And he's looking around to see if that was happening. Well, as we read on to this passage, we find out 
what Jesus' examination uncovers. Skip down to verse 15 with me. Same chapter, Mark 11, verse 15. This is the next day when Jesus comes back and says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus is described as being gentle and lowly. And Jesus was indeed gentle and lowly to sin strugglers throughout the Gospels, to, to the sexually immoral, to the tax collectors, to those that people wrote off. Jesus was so gentle and so lowly. But here we see an angry Jesus. Not, not a limp-wristed, spineless Jesus, but a Jesus who goes postal, a Jesus who goes nuclear. This is the busiest week of the year for the temple, the busiest week of the year for Jerusalem. And Jesus comes into the temple as if he owns the place. And he starts turning over tables, sending people out. Why is it that Jesus, who is so gentle and lowly so much of the time, is now angry? Well, before we get to that, you need to know that what makes us angry reveals what we love. What makes us angry reveals what we love. For example, silly illustration, at the end of a long day, if I sit down on my couch and turn on the TV, getting ready to watch it, and a kid needs help, I get a little bit angry. And the reason why I get a little bit angry is because I cherish my downtime. <laughs> it's not righteous anger, but I get a little bit angry. But there is also righteous anger. For example... A more, more that, the more that a wife loves her husband, the more she will hate the alcoholism. She will hate the alcoholism because she knows that it is a barrier in their relationship and she loves her husband. So she's gonna turn over some tables. She's gonna pour some things down the drain. She's gonna try to set things right because she loves her husband. You see, what we get angry about reveals what we love and oftentimes it's not good things, but sometimes it is righteous things. And so let me ask the question again, what made Jesus so angry? What was it that Jesus loves so much? What is it that Jesus cherishes so much that he gets angry in a way that we had never seen before in the gospels? Well, thankfully, we do not have to guess. Jesus tells us what makes him angry. Look at verse 17 with me. And Jesus was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's key, for all the nations. But you have made it into a den of robbers. I have up here a picture for you, uh, a, re, re, uh, a remade version of the temple or a, I don't know a visual graphic of it. And this was the temple. It's called the Herodian temple. It was the most glorious of the three temples that Israel had, had made. And when you come into the temple, there's this area right in here and over here, and it's called the court of the Gentiles. You can see it is very big. Uh, and this is where the Gentiles, Gentiles is a, is a fancy word for non-Jewish people. But this is where the nations would come to worship God, to enjoy God, to connect with God. That was the purpose of these and, and I suspect when Jesus came in uh, after, after Palm Sunday, after the triumphal entry, he came in, he probably saw a lot of tables around in that court of Gentiles. It was late, so people had probably gone home. But then Jesus comes back the next day and he sees that they had turned this sacred place, this sacred place where the Gentiles would come and connect to God, that they had turned this place into a Walmart. 
that they had turned this into a place where they were selling things and trading things and there were animals and there's craziness and there's chaos, but there's also a lot of corruption because the people changing the money were unfair about the money that they would give back. And so this makes Jesus angry because what Jesus loves is Jesus loves people and Jesus loves God and Jesus loves when they get together. Jesus loves when the people of God worship the one true God. And that is being disrupted by the religious leaders for the sake of a few extra dollars. And so Jesus is angry. Verse 18 continues and says, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus, by riding in on a donkey, receiving the praise and worship of the people, by driving the people out of the temple, Jesus was forcing the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders to make a decision. To put their hope in him or to hate him. To king him or to kill him. To crown him or to crucify him. And on Palm Sunday, Christ came as king, humble and mounted on a donkey. Because as we will be reminded of this Friday, this king came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ came to Jerusalem as king, not to wear a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns, to be beaten, to be spat upon, to be humiliated and crucified on our behalf, to take the penalty for our sin, and pay for it in full upon the cross. And then on the third day, Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life and everlasting life. But then 40 days later, and this is important for us to see the connection to the postscript, 40 days later, Jesus ascended into heaven. And I don't know about you, but I've thought, man, why couldn't Jesus just stay on earth? But Jesus ascended into heaven. And the reason why he did this was so that he might send his Holy Spirit. You see, as great and beautiful and magnificent as that Herodian temple was, and it was a sight to see, it was just a shadow of a greater temple that was to come. Jesus said that the Herodian temple would be torn apart, no brick on brick anymore. Every stone would be laid bare, and it was in 70 AD. Because God was replacing that temple with a greater temple. And do you know what that greater temple is? The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says this, do you not know that you, you all, it's you plural, you the church, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you all, plural, are that temple. Christians individually and collectively, we are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit that once dwelt in the Holy of Holies now dwells within the chief of sinners. It dwells within me and within you and within all who trust in Christ for their salvation. Why? Because Christ not only came to restore right worship in Herod's temple, Jesus came to restore right worship in the temple of your soul. And so what is the postlude, the postscript to Palm Sunday, Jesus entered the city and did not go to a palace, but went to the temple because Jesus's primary mission was to restore our true worship of God. Not again, only in Herod's temple, but more importantly, in the temple of our own soul.
let me end with this. I'm not sure if you were aware of this, but uh, just a few months ago uh, were the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. Uh, for whatever reason, it was the lowest U.S. rating ever in, in modern Olympic history. Uh, and I was one of those statistics. I recorded a lot of events and then ended up not watching hardly any of it. Although if you saw the, the two-man luge, like it was just, it was painful to watch, but like I couldn't take my eyes away from it. But for the most part, I didn't watch any of the Olympics because I was busy, because I had more competing entertainment choices, and because I had grown a bit bored of the Olympics over the past 44 years. The extraordinariness of the Olympics had grown very ordinary to me. And if I were honest with you, I would say that Holy Week tends to have the same feeling a lot of times. To be honest with you, as I looked forward to this sermon, I thought, oh, not another Palm Sunday. <laughs> I've preached Palm Sunday 12 years in a row. How much more is there to preach about Palm Sunday? And yet, as I dug into this passage and as God was faithful, he was faithful to convict me and to encourage me. He's faithful to convict me in this way, that if the gospel writers spent a third of their message focused in on this Passion Week, maybe I should follow their example. Maybe I should be as devoted as they were to study and to understand and to marvel at Holy Week. But I was also encouraged because I was reminded by the postscript of Palm Sunday that even though the temple of my heart is often filled with distractions and wickedness and false gods, even though I do not worship God or cherish God as I should, Jesus came to restore my worship of God, not only initially, but continually through the work of his Holy Spirit. Palm Sunday was Jesus's opening ceremony to Holy Week. May it be ours as well. This week, I would like to encourage you by the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit living inside of you to prepare yourself for a good Friday and Easter Sunday, diving deep into the word of God and into prayer, to proclaim Hosanna, Lord, save me. And then the postscript, to repent, to flip over some of the tables in your heart, to drive out some things that are in your life that are inhibiting you from fully worshiping and enjoying God. And then to turn once again to King Jesus, the humble one who not only saves our souls, but time and again restores our heart to rightly worship the one we were created to worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you came in humble, mounted on a donkey, and yet you came in and you were angered because you delight when we worship the living God. You delight when we do the thing that we were created to do, the thing that makes our souls happy, which is to sing to God, pray to God, hear from God. And so God, pray even this week, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would flip up some tables in our own souls. Whatever is distracting us from enjoying you, would you remove it? If there's any sin that's entertained in our heart that's keeping us from, from enjoying you like we should, we pray, God, that you would remove it and that you would give us the power and the strength and the fortitude to put it to death, that we might more fully enjoy our creator. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.